Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I will be very careful about sling and stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. Just another of last year's NFC Championship teams in the middle of a three-game losing skid. That's the way the season seems to be in 2023. Everybody has their struggles. The Philadelphia Eagles drop another one last night to the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, We're going to talk about that on today's show with Brad Spielberger. And then a fantastic, interesting interview we have got with Coach Kevin Kelly. And I'm sure that name won't necessarily mean something to you guys, but... Everybody knows the crazy high school coach that never punts, always goes for it on fourth down, always goes for two points, always onside kicks. This is the guy. Um, And it turns out he also uses a ton of laterals or, you know, rugby plays in his offense. So couldn't be more excited about that. Um, But first, got to talk about Monday Night Football with our guy, Brad Spielberger. How's it going, Brad? Going great. How you doing? Not bad. Um, Big news as well on today's podcast. Our first chance to actually break this news to the people. We weren't allowed to say it yesterday. Apparently it was before the voting had opened. But we are a finalist for the Sports Podcast Awards, the PFF NFL podcast. Apparently the clips that you guys provided came good. We are a finalist for this award, uh, and the voting is now open. So you can go to the description of the show. It's in the Discord channel as well, which you can find in the description. Uh, I've tweeted it out. We're going to make it as obvious as we could possibly make it. Um, Go to the Sports Podcast Awards. We are a finalist for the Best American Football Podcast. And vote for us in your droves so that we can actually become an award-winning podcast, certified award-winning podcast. Um, So, yeah, big week for us in general. Uh, congrats to the show. I know I technically am a part of it, but obviously, exactly. you know, I, there's not my silhouette is not on the picture for a reason. So congrats <laughs> to you and Steve. Uh, no, it is awesome. I'm glad people appreciate it and love it. I always love the uh, the Twitter account that memes you guys like it shows there's there's a community there's a fan base. I'm now familiar with the YouTube comment section after Trevor tipped me off to that. So mm. uh, shout out those guys as well. And obviously our, our fan base comes from being so punctual on these shows and starting at, you know, 1030 on the dot every day ish. Um, anyway, before we get into any of this stuff, we got to quickly hit uh, our friends over at Fabric. 
and tell you all about securing your family's financial future. Uh, Starting with life insurance, Fabric by Gerber Life makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family so you can get back to enjoying life. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Whew. All right, Brad, what was your big takeaway from uh, Monday Night Football where, again, another one of these weird games where Eagles had it for most of the game and then late on they conspired to find a way of throwing it away? Yeah, I think it's interesting. The takeaway that I had was we talked a lot about the Eagles' defense, and for good reason. They've struggled in a lot of these recent losses and even in some of the wins, like the Buffalo game, etc., the offense, I think, because they've scored points and closed out drives and they have a cheat code play, it like kind of went under the radar. This offense has been kind of clunky and out of sorts and bailed out by some Jalen Hurts hero ball for much of the season. But like if you watch pretty much all their games this year, I'm sure I'm forgetting, you know, a handful here and there. You never sit there being like, oh, this is like an efficient offense that I trust to drive 80 yards down the field and consistently score. And I know some underlying metrics are strong, but it's just, I think it's finally popping up now where they can't even, you know, it's like if Hurts doesn't scramble around and hit a shot play to A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith, like they just struggle to sustain, you know, competent drives at times. And obviously last night against a a reeling defense, a defense that's been terrible for like six weeks, um, they really couldn't do much. And that push play probably actually hides a worse story for the offense. Like, if they didn't have that cheat code play on third and fourth and short anytime they wanted it, the offense would look a lot worse. Like, think how many drives that's extending and allowing them to kind of paint over this picture of, as you say, a struggling, clunky offense for almost the entire season. Um, I, I do wonder, like, how much of that is Jalen Hurts playing through injury, you know, dealing with that knee injury, battling through to an extent, it doesn't matter. I mean, unless that's going to heal itself over the course of the year and, and resolve itself by the playoffs, it's irrelevant why. But it is, you know, a potential explanation for why some of these things are happening. Like, Hertz is not playing as well as he did last year, even though, you know, he's setting rushing records for touchdowns because of the push play. And he's not playing badly. It's just he's not playing at the level he was a year ago. Yeah. Obviously, the injury can impact you in a million different ways, but he does, even when it was at, at its worst, and he, you'd see him limping back to the huddle like on a consistent basis, he still has been running around and scrambling like crazy. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, pretty high average time to throw, and you mentioned all the rushing touchdowns. Like, if you can do a fish push five times a game and scramble a ton, your knee's good enough. And again, I'm not trying to say, like, it's not a factor, um, but it's just like you can't I, – I personally don't sit there and be like, oh, dang, he's clearly – like really, really struggling, and right. that's why the offense isn't playing well. I think it's more just, I don't know. It, it does also come back to on both sides of the ball. I think they're very top-heavy now, and I think last year they got away with it by just being, being able to line up and just be better than their opponents. Now you're just 
your concentration of targets is two receivers and, and, and a tight end, you know, get with Goddard back in the fold. There's just, they have no tertiary options on offense. The run game is fine, but it, it, it's nothing special. Now defense kind of same thing. You lose Darius Slay. And it's just like, there are dudes, you have Jalen Carter step up and all these things, but, but like the depth, I think last year was probably better uh, than it is this year. It was a strange game for the offense because there were various periods of this game where it felt like they could just like hook curl, you know, curl flat the Seahawks to death and just keep firing into the the gap in zones and march down the field. And every time they felt like they'd hit that, that zone, where they were just firing away, picking up 10 yards every single time, they then went away from it and started doing something else. And it's like, why? Like, this is working. Just keep doing it until they stop it. Even late in the game, right? They were on one, another one of those drives. And then, as the Manning said, they got greedy. They, they wanted to take a shot. And they, they fired it into the end zone and turned the ball over instead of just, like, they almost certainly would have picked up the next 50 yards if they just kept doing what they were doing. Instead, they wanted it all on one play got too aggressive, put the ball in harm's way, and turned it over. I, like, I don't understand why they went. They kept going away from the thing that was working. No, that's a great point. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and it just it didn't seem necessary in the game. You didn't need to force it. Uh, I think that throw, too, the, the, the turnover to was A.J. Brown in the, in the left side of the end zone, that was, like, I think, second down. It wasn't third down. Right. Um, so it's just, yeah, it, just, it seemed unnecessary for sure. Um, and then, like, the other thing from this game was, was their defense, which – you know, again, has not been as good as it was last season, although with more, I think, reason for it. Like, the personnel on la- uh, in in the main on the offensive side of the ball is the same. The personnel on defense has undergone a lot of turnover, so it kind of makes more sense. But Seattle was able to run the ball really well. Like, they, they were doing a really good job running on this defensive line that you're not supposed to be able to run on because of um, the, the talent, the personnel that they have. And then obviously Drew Locke came up clutch with a couple of big plays at the end, albeit that drive, like the game-winning drive, was insane. Like from start to finish. Play number one, he hits a guy in the chest and it almost gets intercepted because he drops it. Then you have like a a pass that should have potentially been intercepted, ends up actually getting caught by DK Metcalf, like pinning it against his ass cheek one-handed. And then all the way down to like takes an absolute bomb, scores a touchdown on, on third down instead of just trying to pick up a first down like just a crazy game winning drive at the death for the Seahawks yeah and you know shout out new new defensive play caller Matt Patricia leaving James Bradbury in single coverage on an island with no help over the top uh, didn't love that idea and uh you know the, the the field goal drive was even wackier than the touchdown drive frankly there was um you know a big play from Keely Ringo who I actually thought was solid in this game and hasn't put a ton but the big pass breakup on DK Metcalf over the middle um and then they find a way to convert you know the, the fourth and short the first time uh before Pete Carroll's brain just spontaneously combusted down down in the red zone but yeah like yeah obviously there was some flukiness to it but this defense again for me there it's just the fragility we talked about last year like you have two Pro Bowl guys and Darius Slay and James Bradbury and and they push to keep those guys and I get why but Two 30-plus-year-old corners, slay injury, not surprising. James Bradbury regressing, not surprising. And, and, like, here we are where you're throwing in Josh Joby or Keely Ringos, etc. You got Bradley Roby playing in the slot a good bit and and playing all over, really. It's just you, you can't have, you know, we know the weak link nature of a defense, and the defensive line just isn't, you know, they have, what, 70 sacks last year or whatever it is. Like, they're not masking the issues like they have in years past, which is a lot to ask. Um, because they're just they're just so susceptible right now on the back end. The James Bradbury thing is sort of showing the 
just the volatility of cornerback play and how how dangerous that can be in terms of playing around with your salary cap and all that kind of thing. Like last year, they got an all-pro caliber season out of James Bradbury for pennies on the dollar because of the way they picked him up after the Giants cut him. And then this year, they end up paying him the offseason. Now they're paying him like all-pro money and they're getting a bad season out of him. Like they're getting the exact opposite experience from James Bradbury, which, which when you look at his career was always within the range of outcomes, right? That guy has been a very volatile player at a very volatile position, and they've gone from getting, like, the best version of this, um, you know, best play for cheapest money to, like, most expensive money and worst version of him. It's like it's night and day this year versus a season ago from for the James Bradbury experience. And Yeah, like you said, that's the high-variance nature of the position, especially when you're, you know, early 30s and – yeah, but like even blame the defense. We were blaming the defense, but the defense wasn't the problem. I mean, the yeah. offense really just could not sustain drives against the defense that has been just picked apart. And then Devin Witherspoon, who I know has been picked on in coverage, but not there to make splash plays. You know, Julian Love get, picks off his former NFC East foe twice. And Seattle's so interesting. Like they have, you know, three players in Jamal Adams, Devin Witherspoon, and, and Love that can kind of be that roamer, play in the slot a little bit, um, come down to the box and make plays, also play deep. Like, I don't know. It, it, it's it, it was just it was a bizarre offensive output from Philadelphia. People have been driving them off the football with with relative ease. Like you are getting great years from Jaron Reed and Leonard Williams has been a good pickup. Probably not worth the the, the cost, but it just it wasn't a Philadelphia Eagles game. Like you said, taking shots when it wasn't necessary. It just seemed like if they just played their style of football, it probably would have worked out. Even if it was ugly, it probably would have worked out. I wanted to uh, I want to get your take on the Matt Patricia thing um, at the end here, but first I, I wanted to give a shout out to Drew Locke, who Drew Locke played well. Like it's he didn't have a perfect game. Um, there were some mistakes in there as well, but he played well, uh, passed the ball well, had that block on the touchdown where he's out in front um, blocking. I think he blocked Eli Ricks like right into the end zone on Kenneth Walker's score. And then at the end, you know, after the game's done, they they interviewed Drew Locke and. He gave what I think is the most interesting interview I've heard from a player post-game in a long time. Like, we're all guilty of doing this, right? But we we tend to reduce these players into abstractions, and this becomes a transactional discussion and a, you know, a sort of just a, a very detached view of, yeah, of course they should play this guy, not this guy, and, you know, re- increase playing time, don't give him money, give him money, whatever it is. And Drew Locke humanized it all in the space of like 30 seconds, right? He's like tearing up. He was explaining how he doubted himself, right? He went from, you're a quarterback, you're a big man on campus in college, you're supposed to have this unshakable confidence. And then the way his career had gone and he finds himself as a backup, he's talking about how he did doubt himself. And then he goes out there, has this good game and kind of reminded himself like you're, you know, you are capable of doing this. You're this is your dream. Like, go out there and have a great game. And then he does. He hits the big bomb and wins the game. It's like, it was just this amazing, like, minute-long, 30-second snippet of these are real people with real lives, real dreams, and real highs that he just hit that the like, you know, the rest of us will never even experience, let alone, um, you know, appreciate what it means. It was just a really nice moment for Drew Locke, and I felt really good for him. Yeah, it was cool. I think first, that what impressed me on the field was uh, average time to throw below 2.3 seconds. And he struggled at times to get the ball out quickly, you know, can be a freelancer, can try to, you know, make a, a, an explosive happen at any given moment. And so that I thought was, you know, get the ball out quickly, um, you know, spread it around too. But then, yeah, that, I think we forget and maybe don't talk enough about 
Like the adjustment from going from, you know, multi-year SEC starter, absolute gunslinger, second round pick, like supposed to be a starter to then just forgotten, traded away, not playing at all. Like he's probably been the best athlete he's known since the day he was born until right. he turned 20. And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, you, you're not even good enough to play. Uh, and then the game is so different at the NFL level. Like it's, it, it really is um, this massive, massive shift in just mentality and, and, and your, your perspective on life. And you're in your you know early twenties when it happens for a lot of these guys too. It, it was very very cool, and, and obviously you know shout out all of his teammates, um, you know, and, and all that good stuff. But but clearly it meant a, a whole lot to him, particularly for him as well, because like the problems in his NFL career have not been physical. I mean, he's got a good arm, he's big, he's like he's a prototype, he's a prototypical NFL quarterback from an athletic standpoint. Right? He's got all the tools you want. It's been a mental thing. It's been between the ears, and that's what he's sort of shown signs of recently turning the corner on and maybe developing and maybe getting better. So for him, it's like you you have that shift in you're the best guy, to, now you're not. In fact, you're not even good enough to start, but it's not because you don't have the talent. It's because you haven't been able to put it together mentally yet. Like That must be an, an ever-increasing, um, more difficult thing to accept. It's not like I'm just not good enough at this level. It's like... Yeah, I should be able to get this. I just haven't been able to yet. So let me finish with the Matt Patricia thing. I found this a really interesting move. Um, Not only do they essentially make a change in coaching, like they've basically given Matt Patricia control of the defense. They've taken it away. But also it came with a corresponding move of Desai has now been sort of put up into the booth, right? So not only are we, are we basically giving control of the defense to Matt Patricia and letting him take over, but you're being sort of positioned as this airborne, eye-in-the-sky view on the defense to still communicate and still have a thing. And there were some reports, I forget where I read it, that were sort of saying, you know, everybody respects Desai, but he doesn't sort of have the the air of confidence that they're they're wanting from this. So they almost like appreciate his information and his analytical, you know, eye of things and his take on the defense, but they're not buying into, I don't know, the, the overall feel of what he's doing. And, and theoretically, I guess, the, the idea is that Matt Patricia has that, and, but, but they still have a role for Desai, you know, we want your information, we just want to filter it through the guy with the pencil in his ear. If there's one thing we know, it's that players love Matt Patricia and always have. And you you see nothing but glowing, you know, comments. When he got fired, every Lions player was distraught. You know, Darius Slay on the roster. I still think it's funny. I think it was kind of, look, I mean, I'm not inside the building, but I think it was kind of silly. You play Dallas, Kansas City, Buffalo, and San Francisco. You go three and one, but yeah, you give up, you give up a ton of points, um, you know, in, in a handful of those games, Buffalo and San Fran in particular. I, I and I guess the, the the second Dallas game. Sorry, you played Dallas twice. Like right. you know, again, I'm not I'm not there, but I, I just I don't know. That, that's hard for me to kind of stomach. He was in Chicago for a very long time. Uh, quality control guy, gr- great with the secondary. Does super different things. He like spammed stunts his first year as a coordinator in Chicago because they couldn't get pressure. Like he's creative. He, he does things differently. I guess he is Fangio tree, so to speak, but you know, he was in Seattle the year before. Uh, and I thought Seattle kind of outplayed their talent level on defense. I don't know. I just, it's just, maybe I'm just being annoyed because it's Matt Patricia of all people, but I think that guy's gotten plenty of shots and usually fails. Uh, so anyway, I just think it's interesting that they've kind of, they've specified almost this new role for Desai where it's like, you're still, we're not just getting rid of you. We're not just firing you and moving in a different direction, which itself would be like a 
crazy panic move midseason for a team that's still pretty good. It's like, no, we're we're giving we're turning the keys over to Patricia, but we still value the input you have. We just need to filter it through this guy first. It's just this, I don't know, it's a strange there aren't too many moves I can think of midseason, particularly for a contending team, that have looked like that. Um, anyway, before we get into our interview with Kevin Kelly, we got to give you an update on our prize picks lineup from last night. Eli took a shot. Um, he went with three more votes here. DK Metcalf more than 61.5 receiving yards. That hit. Kenneth Walker more than 47.5 receiving yards. That hit. Jake Elliott. It's always the kicker. Jake Elliott for more than one and a half field goals made, which would have hit had Jalen Hurts not thrown the ball to Julian Love again on that final drive. If they got him into position, Jake Elliott does not miss game-winning or tying field goals to walk off of the death, but it didn't happen. So unfortunately, Eli strikes out again, unless he put this in as a flex play, in which case it would cash. Anyway, Price Picks is the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America, the easiest and most exciting way to play DFS is just you against the numbers. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Instead of battling thousands of other players, including pros and sharks, you pick more than or less than on two or six players, stat projections, and watch the winnings roll in. And, of course, Price Picks offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. For football and basketball games, if you have a player who exits the game in the first half and does not return in the second, that player is rebooted. Price Picks is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance policy. Um, go to pricepicks.com slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Uh, that's pricepicks.com slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Remember, that's pick more, pick less. It's that easy. All right, Brad, appreciate you uh, showing up for our Tuesday show and talking a little bit Monday Night Football. But now we're going to k- kick over to Coach Kevin Kelly, who's going to talk about his crazy offense in a, in a positive way, in a Steve way, which features rugby plays and lateral so i'm all on board i uh, hope you've enjoyed listening to that and check out this interview never punt all right thrilled to welcome a very special guest to the pff nfl podcast uh, an area we don't go into too much but if you are a big football fan and very online like a lot of us i think you will know this guy even if not by name you will know coach kevin kelly who is the famous high school coach that never punts that always goes for it on fourth down that that guy so thrilled to welcome you coach how's it going that that guy has been told to me a lot of times you're that guy <laughs> you're yeah, that yeah, i guess guy. i'm that guy yeah i'm no, love- doing well excited to be on man i love love what you guys do I often reference pff uh for a lot of things and uh i love some of the numbers y'all put out and things like that but but it's thrilled to be on yeah, and so I think a lot of people will be, will be familiar with, you know, the very broad strokes of your story in terms of, you know, the guy that, that never punts, the guy that always goes for the fourth downs, the two-point conversions, all those kinds of things. Um, but even then, there's, there's the details I don't think that many people know. So where does your football philosophy come from then, and, and why is it so radical versus the conventional, the same thing that everybody else is doing? You know, sometimes in life you're unlucky, but you're really lucky. And and I was that way. What I mean is when I was growing up playing high school football, you know, my, my when I was a sophomore, I was a starting receiver and I was, we used to run in and out plays. Nobody was doing signals. I'm so old, you know, and you had the guy tag in and run in and out the place. 
my 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 head coach quit three games into my sophomore year with two minutes left in the first half. Nice. You're in the middle of the play. It's a great story. I won't I won't bore you with it, but uh, I should almost put that in a book I'm going to write. But anyway, so I, then the next year I had another guy, and the next year I had I didn't learn any football. Like when I got out of high school, I didn't know what a, I played D back and receiver. I didn't know what cover two was. I'd never heard the words cover two. These guys didn't have a clue what they were doing. And so I go into college and I major in accounting and I'm going through and my buddies look like they're having more fun going to the coaching world. And uh, so they're taking these coaching theory classes. So I took one, didn't learn anything. The guy walked in, took role and let us go. That's what we were, you know, and I'm like, what is that? We're not even teaching them how to be a coach or anything about it. So then I go, I get out of college and I change my major. I go be a coach and I, and I go down to Texas. I go down to Texas and, uh, uh, it, football's different down high school football in Texas is different. And so I go and I'm supposed to be scouting and doing all this. I don't have the first clue. They're like, Hey, we need you to list all the coverages they're doing play by play, how often they do it, what situation they do it in. I don't even have a clue how to do any of it. I, I just talk my way through the job to get the job. Well, so I'm like relying on my buddy. I'm like, hey, what do you think right there? Oh, God, that cover two right there, they play that on third and short only into the short side, the big quarters of the wide. And I didn't know what he's talking about. So the, what I started doing was, in the meantime, you know, when you're young, you're like, I want to be a head coach. So you start formulating your own game plan of what you want to do. And I did what made sense to me. And I was like, I don't even know why we're doing some of the stuff we're doing. That doesn't make any sense. So I was kind of compiling my own list of things and then uh while i was down there i was trying to learn some football but i didn't have anybody talking me through it i was too embarrassed to say i didn't know what i was doing and so i just developed a different way to think about it then and then when i first got my first job offer as a head coach i went in and sat down in the coat and, and, and i was sitting in the desk and i remember thinking well this is cool i'm a head coach now and then it hit me why am i going to be any different than us other guy because he's probably a smarter coach than i am so that's when I started asking why we do everything in football. And I went by month, January offseason to pregame meals. And when I got onto the field, I was like, okay, why are we running this offense? Why do I want to run this offense? Why that defense? Why do we want to punt? Why do we want to kick off? And if I didn't have a good reason, I took a real look at it. And with some of those, it just morphed into what it is now. So we're definitely going to get back to this offense, but I, I can't let that go by without finding out the story of how a coach quit in the middle of the game because that's what people were saying Brandon Staley should be doing in the middle of the Raiders hanging 60 on them. Uh, I, uh, I need to know, how does a coach quit in the middle of a game? I was running in plays. We're playing in a town, you know, uh, I don't know, 45 minutes away or whatever. They were really good at football, and our school was not good at football. <laughs> So we're 0 and 10. We're in game. We're 0 and 2. We're game three of the season. I'm running in plays with a senior, and so we're down 14 nothing. And it, he and, and we get the ball. They scored, and we and they kick off to us. There's a little less than two minutes left in the half, so plenty of time. We had two timeouts left or whatever. So the first play, he gets me and the senior. The senior always goes in first on first down. And he looks, and I'm standing there with him, and he goes, "Hey, and the guy's name was Randall Vesey. That was right place." He goes, "Randall." You go in and tell John uh, that we're just going to take a knee and run the half out. Well, Randall runs in, and I see like a little it – was, it was usually a little circle huddle, and I see some unrest out there. And I look up, and a, John doesn't take a knee. The quarterback, John Bright, takes the ball, does a draw play, hands it off to the running back who made like 14 yards. 
And the coach, he runs off. The coach is yelling at Randall, you mother effer, I told you. I told you to tell John to take a knee. What are y'all doing? Y'all think y'all can do what you want to. He looks at me and he says, Kelly, you go in there and you tell John Bright, he better take an effing knee. I go running out there. And I'm like, I don't know what y'all are doing out here. Coach is pissed. We got to take a knee. And so one of the seniors and the meanest kid on the team, he played left guard. He beat me up every day when I was in ninth grade. He 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 looks at uh, John. He goes, if you take a knee, I'm going to kill you. And he goes, well, what do you want to do? He goes, I want to run a screen pass. So John calls a screen pass. We throw a screen and we make like 10 more yards. So we're moving the ball and the coach hadn't called a play. I go running out and he is screaming at me. Like, I told you to tell him to take a knee. I said, coach, I did, but the seniors are going to kill John if we take a knee. <laughs> and so John chose to just run the play. I look out and he goes, well, they better take a knee this time. Well, Randall went out there and told him the same thing, and they called a 10-yard out route. We catch it on the sidelines, our sideline, right in front of the coach. And we're on the 50 now with like a minute left and two timeouts <laughs> left. And he looks, and he said, y'all don't want to do what I want you to do. I epic quit. Takes his clipboard, throws it up in the air. I never saw the man again. That's amazing. <laughs> I never saw him again. That's an incredible story. So uh, what an experience as a, as a kid. Why I would want to be a coach after that, I'll never know. Yeah, well, to, to do it better, maybe. Um, maybe. So you said you, you sort of, when you got to the, the job, you, were, you basically questioned everything, tried to figure out what the reason was. To what extent is, like, how much is analytics or data driven that, right, rather than just let's come up with a good reason, you know, see to your pants type of gut feel stuff? Now, now it's almost all analytics driven. You know, what would have, would have, uh, and here, here's an example from 03 to 2014, I was doing what I told, what I thought made sense. And we were, we, we started not punting my first year at some. We punted 22 times in 15 games my first year. That got a little less and less as I started to believe in it. And, uh, but, but when in 2014, in 2009, I got to go speak at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Mm -hmm. Daryl Moore called, Daryl Morey called me up out of the blue and says, Hey, you know, you're the only guy doing anything remotely numbers based in football. You know, we'd like to have a pro coach, but nobody's doing it. Will you come talk? So I did. A couple of years later in 14, he asked me to come back. And I said, Listen, uh, I found somebody that had some pull. And I said, Listen, all I want to come do that is I want an hour with a data scientist at ESPN because they were always set up with a big thing there. Somebody said, I'll get you that. So I go down, I get an hour with them. And all I did was was go over numbers. Now analytics was a word that was right. being used and tossed around. Nobody was doing it football, but they were in baseball and some basketball. And I got an hour with them. And all I was doing was asking analytics questions. My goal was to find out what are the five or six things that matter the most and who wins football games. I took what I thought could apply that I could really apply and fix in a game of football that made sense, that had some background. Because, you know, it's one thing to go, well, you know, whoever has the most 20-yard plays in a game wins 81% of the time. But why is that? Right. You know, and, and, and I went through and figured out why. Well, so I figured out, you know, the 20-yard play thing, whoever has the most quarterback sacks wins 77% of the game. There's tackles for losses. There's – uh, uh, getting outside the edge if you're an edge-setting team. You know, there's all kinds of things. And so I I picked out the five or six that I wanted to focus on that were in the top ten and started just – that's the way we started practicing. 
Well, as I realized, we became really efficient when you don't, you've got to work on blocking and tackling some, and you got to work on protecting the football, but everybody's working on that. And eventually, whoever's the biggest, strongest, fastest wins those categories. So what are the ones you can base everything on? So I based them on those five or six things. And and then it came to me, people people will do things better if they understand the why. When I was growing up, you know, your mom said, hey, go do this. I said, why? You got your butt whipped, you know, because I said so. That's why. But the world doesn't work like that. So I started educating our coaches and our players. This is why. So it got to the point where you could walk out of our field and go, hey, why are y'all doing this portion of football right now? And they would go because uh, – you know, if we stop them on the first play of the series, the chances of scoring goes down 40%. So they knew. And if they know, then they can make sense of it, and they're all in. They buy in. So I did all that. And so from 03 to 2013, I won three state championships. When I went all in on analytics in 2014, we won six of the next seven state championships. Now, keep in mind, all this was at a school that had never even been to the finals let alone one one. And so things changed when I started using numbers and I didn't know what I was doing at first. And then I became where I did know what I was doing and started even making it more and more and and and, and went that direction. And, and it worked very, very successfully with nothing else changed. The team was what it was, but we were being very efficient in everything we did and had good reasons and were doing the things that win games the most. So how easy was it to get players to buy into this as a concept, right? Was it just a case of explaining to them, like, this is why, and then once the results were good, it, it self-perpetuated? Like, were there ever moments where they, they weren't believing in it, right? And it had to, you had to con- pull them all around and, and say, no, look, we've got to stay the course. This will be successful. And then that's where, you know, I shouldn't I shouldn't parallel this with the world we live in today and politics and all that. That's where people are failing. And I had to learn the hard way. At first, I thought kids were buying in. But when, when things got tough right. or you lost, I mean, it's like it's like playing blackjack. You know, if, if it, it, there's only the house only has a 51 and a half percent a chance to win. And you got a 48 and a half if you play it exactly. So you're not all I mean, you know, they're not all the house isn't always going to win. But over the big picture, they're always going to win. Well, you know, I would go, look, you know, here are the numbers on this. And then sometimes if it didn't go right, the parents would, yeah, yeah. And the kids would hear and they would start to question. Okay. Right. And so they seemed like they bought in. But then I realized they hadn't bought in. They just believed me until there was a reason not to. So then I had to really go through the psychology of telling them, look, your parents don't understand. You can't listen. I I want you to listen to them on everything except this. And... I had to really show them the reason. So then I'd get out the board and I would show them and explain to them. So not only did they listen and believe me, they understood. And that's where the believement came in. And the reason I said parallel that with the world today is sometimes, you know, we want the, you know, the, the world puts out something on media, social media, and people believe it. But then the first time it doesn't work, even if it was right, people say they're lying. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But then all of a sudden there's distrust. And I learned how that, you you know, you've got to put it out there completely for them where they know it's not always going to work, where they understand what a big sample size is. So the first time it doesn't work like an onside kick, it's only going to work at best one out of three times. That's my best year ever. But one out of three, you're going to win all your games. And uh, the first time it doesn't work, the two out of three, they can't go, well, that doesn't work, you know because it does. 
And so you've really got to get in depth, get them to believe you and show them the reasons why it does. Then they'll buy it. So you had to, I had to learn how to really what buy in meant. So um, when when a lot of people, because you're basically living the dream that a lot of these sort of a lot of guys watching football have wanted to see for years, right? Why doesn't the why don't teams just do this? Because the numbers say you know X, Y, and Z, and yada yada. Um, did you find that actually doing it though, and doing it as 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 often and as full, com, you know, complete, comprehensively as you do, does it actually change? the kind of baseline numbers that you started from in the first place. Like, you know, if we say go for two every single time because the numbers say you're better off than going for one if you hit at the standard rate that most uh, teams hit on in two-point conversions. But if you start doing it every single time, do you get better at that? Do defenses get better at stopping it? Like, does it change the baseline number that you're starting from? Yeah, and let me preface this by saying some of the things that are said that we did are myth or myths. We didn't go for two every time. Okay, We went two for two every time on the first two scores of the game. Right. And then subsequently, if it would, if a going for two would put us up three scores or two scores, then I would do that. Unless it was late in the game, then I played it. I played it by what you're supposed to do. So that's another thing. But we did go for two more than anybody ever, ever has. And we did it every time on the first two scores of the game. But what I did find is you're exactly right. And, and this is true about anything. Really, it's it's the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing. Right. If you do something a bunch, you're going to get better at it. You play golf a lot, you're going to get better at golf. You shoot the basketball a lot, you're going to get better at shooting basketball. If you get better, if you if you work on, as a coach, being creative and working on two-point plays and planning them out and then practice your team on executing those plays, but not only that, what it feels like in the moment. There's a lot of apprehension when you go for two on both sides of the ball. The defense really doesn't want you to go for two. And the offense is like, what if we don't make the two? Right. So the psychology matters too. But we did. We got better and better and better. And so if you're better than the 48 point whatever percent that's on average everybody can get it, then you're at a big advantage. And if you can get it more than 50% of the time, in theory, you're better off. Well, if you – people don't understand the psychology of that either. Let me give you a for example. I didn't realize this. And USA Football Clinic uh, had me go down to Florida and put on a clinic, and they wanted me to do two points. I'm like, okay, I'll do two points. I didn't even realize this until I was digging it up. I would show the two-point plays on the first two scores of the game, and then I would flash the scoreboard up there. So I'm going to ask you, let's say you're coaching against me, okay? And let's say I, I get the ball first, and I go down and score a touchdown, and I go for two. And I kick off to you, so it's 8 nothing, and you go down. And you score a touchdown. My question to you is, we're in the first quarter. Are you going to go for two and chase, or are you going to kick the extra point? I mean, I think, Which one are you going to do? I think the conventional coach would probably be, I'm going to take the extra point. Right, right. And, mo and it's probably a little more than half do that. Right. Some of them are like, oh, these guys score a lot. We better chase them. But, okay, it's 8-7. Now, my, my off the, the, the only thing I'm really, really good at in the world is offense stuff. My Out, out of the top. 100 in the history of high school football. Say there's there's a little over 16,000 high schools that play football, okay? And out of those six, go back 50 years, that's 800,000 seasons. Uh, 10, uh, 12 of the top 100 offensive seasons, I own those in the game of football, okay? Now, some of it's because we use more downs and all this, but the point being we score a lot, right. okay? So, so we're going to go down and score again, and we did this a lot, and now I go for two again. The beauty is this. If I make the first one, if I don't make the second one, no harm, no foul, I'm up 14-7. to seven. Mm -hmm. If I do make the second one and you look up there to see the score, 
it's 16 to seven. Right. All of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I've had the ball once. They've had the ball the second time. I've got the ball the second time and I can't even tie them up. Even if we execute perfectly, it's a psychological disadvantage for them. And I didn't know when I was going through just the random season and putting together the season for that USA football clinic, I happened upon that happened five times out of 14 games that year, randomly, that when I showed the scoreboard, it was 16 to seven. And that's a tough spot for you to be in. The other ones, it was a lot of times it was 16 to nothing or 16 to 14. Right. But five times it was 16 to seven. That's a huge advantage. And if you can do it at a higher rate than everybody else and make it, why not do it? It's just another in the game winning percentage index that there is out there. Every decision you make either hurts you or helps you, period. And you don't know what the outcome is going to be. But if you make the one that has the best chance to help you, you can take a 50-50. And if I make 10 decisions that just matter 1% in theory, if it's a 50-50, Vegas picked you as a pick em game. Without changing anything I do on offense or defense or getting better players, if I do right 10 times and that guy makes the wrong decision 10 times, it's 60-40 just like that. And I had to get no better, just great decisions. And so that factored in too, and it really just turned into a monster. One thing that I didn't know about your offense or or anything about your story until – you know, a couple of people tagged you on Twitter uh, recently when I asked the question was how many lateral plays your offense uses. Um, and I've been kind of pushing this for so long because I, I have a rugby background. I came, I, I'm Irish, I coach rugby, um, kids rugby, all those kinds of things. So I've been kind of waiting for years for this explosion in the use of laterals after the catch. And then you you show up on Twitter and you show me all these plays from your offense that have them built in there. So where did that element of thing, of your offense come from? You know, in go back to the, the explosive plays are right there with turnovers as the most important thing and who, does, who wins, okay? Not the numbers they give you all as explosive. It's straight 20-yard plays right. is the number. You can go, well, explosive play. You know, we are a – you know, I don't know if you can say this on here. You can edit it out. Say what you, want. you know, we're in the pussification of America. <laughs> you know, as and I coined that term. I actually had a website. My school made me take it down 15 years ago. Uh, but but we're in the pussification of America. We, we want everybody to feel like they're getting a trophy or this or that. That's part of it. Well, when 20-yard plays was the number that came out originally. And then they're like, well, that's not enough because some offenses in their running game are just getting 12 yards. Let's count 12. Well, that deteriorates the numbers to me. It gives you more of a sample size, but that's not a legitimate number that matters as much. So 20 is the number. So when I was looking for ways, that was the number one factor besides turnovers. I'm looking for ways to create 20-yard plays. Laterals came to mind. So I called up a couple rugby guys, just random dudes. I ended up talking to, at one point, some guy that was on the U.S. National Rugby Men's Coaching Team. You know, And I'm asking him how to do it, what what. What do we look for that makes it put the ball on the ground, the bad, the good? You know, I'm getting a little coached up here myself. And here's where I realize that buy-in's buy-in, but when you go against the norm crazy, sometimes they don't. So I go out to my kids one day, and I'm like, look, we're in the offseason. I'm like, look, we're going to do a lot of rugby laps. I think if we pitch the ball around like them, and I showed some rugby videos, I was like, look, they move the ball down the field without stopping. What if we could continue the play? Well, I practiced it. They were all in. We got to the, we got to the season. And we were throwing it and expected the lateral because we weren't doing design hook and laterals. Right. I was having the closest receiver run to them, and we were going to pitch it like an option down the field. And they would never pitch the ball. And I'm like, what the freak's going on? We've been practicing this crap all year. And they're like, 
yeah, but if we turn it over, we know you're going to be getting mad. And I'm like, <laughs> oh. I'm like, guys, I've told you, you've got the freedom. If you don't get mad, I told you. Here's what we're looking for. Here's the key. And they just wouldn't do it very much. And when I thought they could, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back to designing straight hook and lateral plays because they're still extremely effective. Because mm. here's what the beauty of those are. Besides continuing plays, if you're a defensive back or a linebacker and we throw a 10-yard pass and you go sprint to that guy, but the guy you leave might be the guy getting the pitch. Yeah. Now are you going to go really leave him and run to the ball like everybody wants you to? Or are you not? you got to be careful if you're playing us because you're my back guy may be getting the pitch and you're just opening up to go a long ways. So immediately I thought, okay, so right in the middle of the season, these guys wouldn't pitch. And I go, okay, screw it. We're going back to standard hook and laterals. And I'm going to put out in the media those words I just told you that, hey, watch out because if you do it, you're, you're opening us up. Because what that does is if we're able to pitch it, good. If we're not, now you've you've stopped gang tackling and you've put more guys in one-on-one open field tackling, which in my opinion is the second hardest thing to do in football. And so now you're creating more one-on-one open field opportunities at the same time. If they don't, we've got our hook and lateral rules and all that kind of stuff. So I created another way. And then you've got your fake hook and laterals, which was a key win for us. That that single movement, that play opened up a win for us one game in Nashville, Tennessee, that we probably wouldn't have won without the fake hook and lateral because they were spreading to that guy that was coming. They would yeah. look and find that guy and go attack him. So it opened up other opportunities, and that's what we don't understand in the game of football or anything in life, really, are the butterfly effects. Instead of the looking at the one moment, you know, even when we onside kick, I was going down, we were going to play uh, – a team that was that was a defending state champion one time, and we're and I'll, I'm kind of relaxed on the bus. I don't make the kids get their game face on on the bus. I, nobody knows what that is. They're just worried about crap, you know, dumb stuff. So we're listening to the radio, and it's a it's a high school radio show, and they're talking, they're interviewing the coach that we're playing. He's like, "Well, I don't know about this, but Kelly's not getting any onside kicks on us. Out of our two and a half hour practice, we practice an hour a day on onside kicks." I turn off the radio and look at the kids and go, "We won the game." Like, what do you mean won the game? Like, they spent an hour of their practice working on onside kicks. That's only going to take place eight times in the game. And so that's time they're not spending on our defense, on our offense, on themselves, you know, that kind of stuff. So the butterfly effects of onside kicking, even if you don't get one in a game, are still evident, and they're there. And so that's when I really realized anything you do that you can justify, make sense, numbers-based, can really help you win football games. So we went all in. I think the season that we did that, I think we ended up pitching the ball 32 times in a 14-game season. And if you're the other team and you're like, God, two times or more a game, yeah, they're going to pitch the ball around. Defensively, you're a little hesitant. And hesitant in a game of football is not good. Yeah, I mean, it's win-win, right? It, it does everything you describe, which is either you take advantage of the space that's there because of the way defenses are playing right now, that whole run-to-the-ball thing, you know, gang tackle, everybody head to the football, leaving previous other players in the route wide open if you can get the pass away, or you stop them doing that, in which case it makes it more difficult for the defense to stop whatever you're running conventionally in the first place. Um, and I think you're right. Like, the reason that football generally is afraid of that as a as a thing to introduce on offense is because of the fear of turnovers which are obviously 
a much bigger problem in football than it is in rugby, right? It's a bigger deal if you put the ball on the ground. Um, now, I, I would say your risk appetite is more <laughs> higher than a lot of other coaches, but yeah. how, how much did you need to practice just the, the passing the laterals before you were comfortable running them in a game? You know, well, what's it, it depends on how you want to do it. And if, if you've got several kids at skill positions that you trust with the football, then then you got to practice it more because it'll be out of different sets, different guys getting it. They need to understand the speed of the other guys. You know, one year I've had two or three guys I could do it with. One year I had one guy that was phenomenal at it, but it didn't take much practice because he was the only one I knew we were going to throw it to. So the timing and the way he ran the route, and I didn't have to work with it any. So literally I would work with it once a day. We would run that play once a day in practice, and that was plenty good to run in the game. And he was 100% effective. And so it depends on if you want to do it with one guy or if you've got three guys you can trust. But the, the the thing you have to remember, too, is like you're talking about, if you're talking about efficiency and you're talking about numbers and analytics, you know, it can't be something that you've got to spend too much time on to take more away from what you have to work on. Right. And that's the balance right there. So what I try to do is find one or two kids that can do it really well, and I don't have to spend any time on it. But I will tell you this. This is the beauty of it, too. You go, hey, do you want to be a hook and lateral guy? They're like, yes, because they know they're getting a reception mm. and they love being the center of attention. Be like, then you get your other three receivers and you make them, not me, you make them stay five minutes every day after practice and work on it. Get the quarterback to throw you the ball, work on the timing up. I don't even have to work on it in practice because I look up, they'll be doing it before school, before they go to class, you know, because they want to be that guy and cool be successful. Yeah. So it's kind of self-perpetuating efficiency. Did you ever work on any kind of like rugby mechanics or because the option mechanics, you know, this sort of classic like flick sideways thing always struck me as a ridiculous way of passing the football. It's a terrible way to pass the football. Right. Um, But equally, a rugby pass, like a conventional spiral pass from rugby is not intuitive either, right? You need to learn that sort of from the ground up mechanics wise. So I noticed certainly from some of the clips you were showing me on Twitter, you basically just kind of let them pitch the ball, right? Like the, the way I a did. normal person what, would pitch a ball. What I, what I did was I told them what we're not going to do, and then I would throw them the ball and let them pitch it and coach them up from there. And what I mean is the pitch is not the part that's important to me. It's making it easy for the guy to catch the ball. Right. Right? That That's the bottom line. So – I didn't. We don't want that option where the ball spins yeah. end over end like that. I mean, you know, this is hard to catch, and and I didn't want it spinning like a spiral very much. The you know basically what you want is the knuckleball effect. The ball just floating. It's not spinning. It doesn't. The the the, the laces don't hit a thumb and it bounces the other way a little bit, cause you to bobble it. So we just tried to work on catching it and tossing it ahead of the guy, not at the guy. You know, if we're running when we toss it. We tossed it actually with the direction that are away from the direction that we're running. If I'm running this way, I'm tossing it up slightly the opposite way to take some of the speed off the right. ball. So it doesn't hit the guy in the chest and slam. If we're stationary, you pitch a knuckleball. Both hands up in the air like that, and you pitch a knuckleball so it's not rotating at all. I got that idea from talking to some rugby guys. And then I just got out there and just looked and saw what was easier to handle, and that's mm-hmm. how we ended up doing it. So most of your passing is actually, it's kind of like pop passing, right? You just want to take all the, the velocity out of the ball and make it as easy as possible for somebody to catch 
who's going to be running onto it. Like the, the, the kind of the magic of the, the passing with the laterals is it's, it's headed towards a guy that's basically at full speed at this point. He just needs to collect it out of the sky as opposed to, you know, trying to cover some distance with the ball towards a guy who's in space, not necessarily, you know, at, at full speed. Yeah, and those are really, you just described the two different kinds of situations there are. Right. If it's two ships passing in the night, like a reverse behind the line of scrimmage, for instance, even if we did a reverse, we never handed off on a reverse. We pitched the reverse, and we tossed it uh, straight up, slightly away from the guy that was coming at it. Right. And that's what we would do downfield. The, The best one, though, is the stationary catch back to the defense, because then you can give your receiver the option to run either side wherever there's no defender behind, and he can be four or five yards away, and you still feel good about the pitch. And so that that's my favorite one. But it all came down to, again, simply what's the best way to do it to handle the ball on the other end? You know, it doesn't need right. to be what's easiest to pitch because you've got the easy job, you know, catch it and pitch it. You know, it's the catching of the ball under duress is the hard part. So despite like the NFL being, you know, the, the, the pinnacle of football, I guess, in terms of quality, skill, all those kinds of things, athletes, it, it strikes me as like the most conservative element or most conservative level of the game. Like the lower down you get, the more willing people are to experiment and to do different things and to push the boundaries. Um, what stuff do you think should be happening in the NFL right now in, in, in these kinds of terms? Like are there stuff that you run on offense that – every team should be doing yeah I, you know it's funny i've been talked to by so many people so many coaches have come to visit me uh nfl i mean gms from the nfl mm. you know have had me up and, and different things and then and of course i developed a relationship with coach belichick and right and stuff and and and, and they're conservative because and i get it this is why in football it's harder the faces of the program college football high school football nfl you always in the in, in the NFL you know a lot more because the because the the amount of to coverage, but the the head coach and the quarterback. Well, the head coach if he's the face of the program, like I can't tell you who the manager of the Cincinnati uh, uh, Reds are. I couldn't pick his face out of a lineup, right? But I can pick the face out of a lineup of Zach Clark, the Bengals guy. Exactly. I mean, they're more known, and if you're more known, you're more risk averse because when it goes bad, you're the guy. You know, if you call for a steal and a guy gets thrown out in the ninth inning and that loses the game for you, the baseball manager, nobody's yelling at him after it's over with. Nobody even knows who the guy is, you know. So it's a lot more. So I'm defending him a little bit. But to say all that, to answer your question, they need to pitch the ball around a little bit more. Look at what's happened just this year. Think of the two biggest throw the ball around during the plays you can think of. That's the L.A. Chargers. Mm -hmm. It was a successful third and long. And then the – well, what should have been successful right. if one of the touchdowns up right off the board in the right. Chiefs game. Yeah. Yeah. And so they need to do that. They need to onside kick a little more, but they need to get away from the way that they do it. The old traditional way, we go bounce, bounce, it hops up high, and the receiving team can have their five guys block, yeah. and that guy's got a free pass. Kick the ball on the ground where it doesn't bounce, where that front line. They've got to make a decision. This thing's coming right at me. Am I going to dodge it or am I going to cover it myself and make them make a decision? And even if it gets through them and they still come block, the guy behind, a football doesn't roll straight like a basketball. It's harder for him to catch instead of hop, hop, 
he's just catching it like it's an easy thing. They need to, and some have changed it, and you've seen it. I don't know if you remember three or four years ago, it might have been on Thanksgiving, the Cowboys kicked what they called, what did they call that thing? It's a copter, but they stole The yeah. guy literally, I know the guy he got it from. <laughs> and that guy said, well, I came up with this, and we called it, I forgot what they called it. And I'm like, look, I don't mind. I don't want any credit. But don't act, don't make up a story that you came up with this because I know the guy I sent the film to that gave it to me. <laughs> that part pisses me off. Don't just don't lie. Just say, hey, saw this somewhere, whatever, right. whatever. But that was a great kick. It was on the ground. And then uh, uh, the Falcons have done that a few times mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. They got like three, I think, in yeah. two games one time. But they didn't kick their traditional stomp. So they need to do that. They need to pitch the ball around more. And they also need to, gosh, some NFL coaches are terrified to throw the ball between the numbers. And if you looked at two years ago, Jalen Hurts threw the ball less between the numbers than anybody in the NFL. Than anybody in the NFL, and they weren't that good. Last year, not this year, last year, he was the third most between the numbers, and they went to the dang Super Bowl. You know, And the reason I say that is, you said, what What should they do? They're not doing throw the ball between the numbers more and throw it between nine and 20 yards more between those numbers. Because if you play action, which everybody knows is the most efficient play, the linebackers have to come downhill. It's easier to get behind them and in front of the safeties. And the ball is not in the air as long for a defender to make a move on it. It's a shorter pass, a 15-yard pass straight down the field if you're in the shotgun is 21, 22 yards. A 15-yard pass to the sideline when you're at the shotgun might be 32 yards. Right. And the ball's in the air longer. It's harder to be accurate. The defense has more time to do it. So those three things are the things that need to be done the most. And then more trick plays because of this. There's a, there's a, a, a You can't find a lot on it, but I, I did my own research on this and just randomly looked up trick plays that worked, didn't work, whatever. When the ball is touched by somebody other than the center, the quarterback, and the guy hands it or throws it to. Add one extra guy in there. There's a high percentage probability of a of a twenty yard player over. Okay, and people go, yeah, but there's a lot of lot of things that could go wrong. Mm. Well, not if you're the Raiders last night. They did a couple times, but that said, uh, it, it it makes the defense hesitant. They can't come barreling downhill every time because they don't know where it's going to go because you run tw- two trick plays a game and they don't want to be caught for two touchdowns on those two trick plays, it makes them more hesitant. So to answer your question, onside kicks more, uh, but do them the, a different way than right. the old traditional dumb style. And then throw them between lateraling the ball around. And then, uh, uh, and then, then what I just told you is a straight trick plays where the defense has to hesitate. You get a defensive coach and you have two trick plays the week before they're going to spend like 30 minutes of extra time of practice working on your dumb trick plays. And that's time they're not working on their own thing. It's also stuff that confuses us when we see a different look or a different formation. How much of this do you think, like the NFL's kind of reluctance to push into this area is related to practice time? Because that's the excuse I think that people always use. You know, you can't do all this kind of stuff. The practice time's not enough. A lot of NFL players say that that's just kind of an excuse these days thrown around why, you know, offensive line play isn't good, why whatever. It's not really a valid excuse. But, like, does does an, if an NFL team wanted to 
let's say, take your entire offense and run it next year. Is that practical in terms of their practice time, or would they have to sort of introduce it bit by bit? Like year one, we're going to start doing more laterals, more trick plays, more whatever. Year two, onside kicks, that kind of thing. No, they can do it. I mean, I've been around NFL programs for weeks at a time. Right. And watch the whole week and the meetings and the practice and the meetings and practice. And no, you can do it. It's not rocket science. I mean, it's just not. And it's very doable. It's the risk aversion yeah. that's going to keep them from all these things and the money involved. And, you know, and, 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 you know, Nick Saban actually said it to me in a way that made me understand. He goes, you know, well, coach, he goes, I, I believe in a lot of what you're saying. He told me this several years ago. I believe in a lot of what you're doing. I believe in a lot of what you're saying. He came to see me and 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 was talking about it, which I thought was pretty cool. That's why Nick Saban's Nick Saban. Right. He's willing to ask some guy that, that coached high school, you know, how to get better. And he said, I believe in what you're saying, but there's two things. One, if you've got a team that wins like me, if we change anything and it does and it makes us lose a game, then I'm questioning myself. Like, hey, dummy, you know, uh, uh, we were already winning. What did I need to do that for? And then two – if I get fired, I'm fine. I've got a lot of money. Head coaches have contracts and buyouts and all that. He goes, but my assistants might not be fine. They are a little more nowadays, but my assistants, you know, some are making $300,000, might not be able to get another job for a year, and all of a sudden they don't have any money. I'm hurting their wife. So he goes, he gave the example, if I go for it on fourth and one, and I'm a normal college coach, in the first quarter, fourth and one on my own 30, and the numbers say do it, but we lose the game. I don't make it, we lose the game. They're going to point to that situation and go, that's why you lost. Mm-hmm. And I might get fired on Monday if I'm a normal guy. And then my whole staff's going to get fired at the end of the year. And he goes, some guys won't do that to their guys. So besides the risk aversion, there's that loyalty and worried about their guys too. So, you know, that's probably not as prevalent in the NFL, but I do think it factors in. Oh, definitely. I'm sure it's a huge part of it. Like the not not necessarily the loyalty that to the to the staff thing, but just understanding that's the lens through which they view everything, right? Is the the potential yeah. negative consequence because as a as a sort of football viewing world, we're not there yet. It's not the norm. So it's gonna be seen as a mistake if you screw it up and everyone's gonna get fired because of it. It's definitely gotta be a huge part of it. So if you were, if I put you in charge of the Panthers, right, this offseason, I said, right, you're the guy, new head coach coming in, David Tepper wants to go in a new direction. What's the first thing? What's like the biggest thing you would want to bring in from your offense? What's this, the most important thing you think an NFL team should change and implement? Uh, for, for, well, and you, you know, it would be different for different people, but for the Panthers, it would be they've got to find a way, they've got to find a way to not not make four yards every play because the reasons like like for instance you know people w- w- a sack it's known as a drive killer well why is it a drive killer well because they're losing yards on a play now it's a drive killer because if you ask a team to start at their own twenty five and average five yards a play and go fifteen plays to score a touchdown a drive killer is a holding or a sack you're asking them to do fifteen plays in a row without basically effing that up. You know, somewhere in there, you need a chunk play to take out four other plays you have to run. So the way you do that isn't necessarily by throwing the ball 20 yards down the field, but it's by throwing less stationary routes or routes that are conducive to you have to run out of bounds, less out routes where you catch the ball at the sideline, less stop routes where your back is to the defense. Run after catches don't occur very often 
if a play is not designed well on five yard stop routes or curl routes. They got to run more. Uh, I would that, that the first thing I'd say is throw the ball between the numbers and motion routes where a guy catches it on the slant, on an in cut, whether it's a short in cut, a dig, or a post, a quick post, a crossing route. Not enough crossing routes are running the NFL. My gosh. You know, but the 49ers do a good job. But clear cross is the best thing ever. If you don't mind, if you like to throw it short and make an easy throw for your quarterback, if you design the play right, clear and cross underneath are the, the easiest thing to do for run after catch, for big plays, and not put your quarterback under duress. And that's what you have to do. That's the first thing I'd do for the Panthers. The second thing I'd say is, what do you guys got to lose? You need to think, especially at the end of this year, anytime, anywhere, any place would be my motto for them. And that means simply trick play anytime, any place, anywhere. Onside kickoff if I want to, anytime, any place, anywhere. Lateral, anytime, any place. The same things we've been talking about. Why would they not do it? This grinding it down the field's obviously not working. You know, their offensive line's not great. Bryce, I mean, and Bryce Young, it's hard to tell. I mean, I hate that they're condemning the kid. What has he got to work with? Adam Thielen, who I love, is his best receiver. Adam Thielen can't get open on man coverage anymore. And he does a great job on zone. He catches the ball. But, I mean, you're asking him to do things. Well, how about changing what you're doing and see if those guys can take advantage of that a little bit? And people will look back and go, well, you were in college one year. That didn't work. Man, I kind of, I'll be honest. I did a piss poor job of getting to buy in. Nobody really realized all the circumstances that were there. I did a bad job of getting those guys to buy in. That's where it first occurred. Because I had guys still coming to me complaining, Coach, do we have to do it like this? I don't want to do it like this. Well, you're not going to be good if you don't buy in. And uh, uh, so – so people will go, well, it's easy to say. Well, it really is easy. To, it, it's easy to do if you're in the Panther situation. Because what do you have to lose? The head coach may or may not lose his job. If he's not going to lose his job because he's 1-12 or whatever they are, he's not going to lose it by trying something different. And if he is going to lose his job because he's 1-12, then you might as well lose it trying to do something different because what you've done for the first 13 games isn't worth it. So that's what I would do. Coach, this conversation has been an absolute pleasure. Um, thanks so much for coming on to the PFF NFL podcast. Congratulations on the new head coaching gig. I uh, can't wait to see what that offense, what that team does going forward. Um, well, there's going to be a lot of these things that we're talking about. Because <laughs> the team I took over, I, I wanted a challenge. I got, I mean, I've been offered a few jobs the last couple of years, but I want to do some family time and do some writing for some NFL stuff. And, and I got to spend a little bit of time with uh, the Patriots and – and learn some more stuff and and but but I took over a team that hadn't won a game in 40 hadn't won a playoff game in 46 years like I don't know how old you were at 46 probably zero mm-hmm. if I'm guessing right yeah hadn't won a game hadn't won a playoff game in that long and I want to show them that maybe you should try a different brand of football and see if that works for you and I think it will and I think it can and that's going to be uh something that we're going to do and and I'm there to prove to a town that don't always do things the same way and expect something different to happen because you've proven that it happened. So let's let's see what else is out there. I'm all for anything that proves all the concepts. So you guys can follow uh, Coach Kelly there at Twitter, uh, at Coach Kelly number one. It's up on the screen right now. Uh, myself and Steve will be back tomorrow for our Christmas episode. Believe me when I tell you, you don't want to miss that because of the outfit that Steve will be wearing. But for now, Coach, appreciate it so much. Thanks for stopping by and uh, talking to us about it, all of that. 
Now, honored to be on. I can mark this off my bucket list. I got a lot of bucket list stuff I've been able to mark off. This is another one, so it's awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Coach, and thank you all for watching.